We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar text the word grade to 32 32 32 right now hooked on phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day for more than 30 years hooked on phonics has been the proven learn to read program that kids love to use text grade to 32 32 32 and teach your child to read in just 30 days guaranteed text grade to 32 32 32 right now and get started for just one dollar text grade to 32 32 32 now text grade to 32 32 32 this is a different perspective with kevin randall kevin is a retired united states army lieutenant colonel who has studied ufos for more than 50 years his military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and ufo research kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. As I promised last week, I'm continuing my discussion with Colonel Richard Weaver, he of Air Force fame. I'm not going to go through his whole entire bio again that we did last week. Uh, Suffice it to say that he's a retired Air Force colonel. He was a former special agent of the Air Force OSI and a retired president of an international tactical training company. In 1994, he was tasked with basically producing the Air Force Roswell Report. And we've discussed how that came about a little bit. He's done a book called Backstory, Roswell, the Exclusive Untailed Disclosure. <laughs> Let me try that once again. It is called Backstory, Roswell, Exclusive Untold Disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report. Sometimes get my tongue tangled when I'm trying to think ahead a little bit. Um, but the the book gives you a good idea of how all of that came about and how they um, conducted some of the investigations. Uh, we did some of that last week. We did not talk about Project Mogul. We did not talk about MJ-12. We didn't talk about the interviews with Cavett. And I think there's some important stuff to be learned in all of that. So Richard Weaver, although it hasn't been that long, welcome back to A Different Perspective. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. When we uh, parted company, <laughs> not really 167 hours ago, um, we had been discussing, I guess, some of the people involved in the case 
that were not mentioned in the uh, in the report. Um, let's jump ahead, and I, I just had the thought. Um, there were a number of pictures taken of the alleged debris that Marcel came that brought brought from Roswell. I guess that came from Roswell. Pictures taken in General Ramey's office. There were two of Marcel with the debris, two of Mar two of Ramey with the debris, two of Ramey and Dubose. Dubose being the chief of staff of the Eighth Air Force. Right. And then there was this, another picture taken of Ward Officer Irving Newton, who was a weather officer at Fort Worth in, in 1947. Six of the pi pictures were taken by a guy named James Bond Johnson, who exploded on the scene in the early 1990s. And we suspect the seventh was taken by the public affairs officer, although we've, we've never been able to find a credit on that photograph. Um the, the the important point here is General Ramey was holding in his hand a document when it, when he was photographed. He's crouched down and he's holding this document in his hand. And there has been some discussion about trying to read the Ramey memo. This is the Ramey memo, the document. There's been any number of scans made of that negative. I've actually personally seen the negative. I have not touched it because I did not. I was not wearing the white gloves. The people at the uh, University of Texas at Arlington Special Collections Archives, they held the uh, negative so that we could look at it and that sort of thing. I've seen the actual negative. A number of scans done to nearly the molecular level now of that with an opportunity to read this. And the reason I bring this up is in, in your report, you mentioned that you had passed it to a high-powered agency, and I'll let you discuss that. To, to see if they could determine what was being said on the, on the memo. How, how did all of that come about and what exactly did they find and who exactly were they? Well, it's, um, as, as you know, people have, were aware that uh, Ramey had something in his hand and you can appear to, to see lines of, of something. And uh, we recognized that immediately too and recognized that this this could have important information on it, or some information related to uh, what it was uh, that w that we were looking for, which was things about Roswell. It also could have been his shopping list from his wife, or, or, or whatever. But we we would have liked to known what it said, and so we attempted to do that. And being a part of the government, we were fortunate enough to be able to go to a. a organization in D.C. called NPIC, which is the National Photographic Interpretation Center, which at the time was highly classified, and even that those words were. And so uh, we couldn't identify them specifically by that title at that time. That, that's since been declassified, and they're part of the uh, National Geospatial Intelligence uh, Agency but uh, today. But uh, <clears throat> They were the people that uh, did all the really high-powered stuff for the agency, for the president, for whatever. So that's their job, and uh, they're incredibly good at what they do. So we sent, we went down to the University of Texas and got the first-generation photos. We got the uh, second-generation negative, which is a negative made from the original negative, and we took those to NPIC and had them look at it. And as, as you know from reading the book in 1994, they basically could not read it with the technology at the time. So while they were able to tell us about the, the balsa wood and the sticks or and, and the metal things and give us um, descriptions of those and uh, from 
photographic interpretation. They could not do anything with the writing, and, which was a big kind of a aw shucks for us because we were really hoping to find something just like y'all probably were. So, but it was not to be certainly at that time frame. Well, here's here's my problem with that. If you get a blow up of the memo held in General Ramey's hand, I think a ten year old kid with a magnifying glass can read Fort Worth, Texas, and weather balloons. I mean, those those jump out at you. There's no there's no question. Those words are there on that document. The rest of it is kind of a jumble. I freely and totally admit that. And there's all kinds of interpretations of what it says. But I think the document refers to something going on in Roswell because of of the uh, the word weather balloons in there. So it is probably not Mrs. Ramey's um, shopping list. By the way, I talked to Mrs. Ramey. She's a very nice lady. Um, but I, I was surprised that they couldn't at least see that much. I grant you the the rest of it is pretty much open to interpretation based on, uh, I think Russ Estes described it best as kind of faces in the clouds. You sort of see what you want to see. Um, I was surprised that they couldn't they couldn't do any better than that. Yeah, and we purposely sent that to them blind, if you will, uh, without telling them what it we just said, here's what we want you to do. We didn't say where it came from, what the time period was, who the people were, any of that kind of stuff, because they didn't need to know that for their interpretation. And we didn't want that to color what they may or may not have known, and probably not, have wrote, known about Roswell. They just leave it as pure as we could. So uh, I could not read anything in it, but we, you, I didn't have all the sophisticated equipment, obviously, that, that they have available. So... Uh, I'll just have to go with what what they reported back to me. Well, as I'm, I'm sure you know now, there's been many, many interpretations of what it says. Right. And the other thing that I don't think it's mentioned too much is J. Bon Johnson, who was a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram at the time. And he was sent out to Ramey's office to talk to him about that he'd come over the teletype that they had a flying saucer. And we can argue about what flying saucer meant in 1947. Um, right. I, not clearly... Clearly, it didn't mean just a alien spacecraft. It meant many, many things. Anything unknown, it could could refer to the flying saucer. But the point the point is, Johnson had said at one point, when he got out there, he posed Ramey and Dubose, and he wanted General Ramey to to hold something, and he handed him a document. He also said that he had brought the teletype in from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that listed the stuff, and so he handed that to General Ramey. I can't believe that Johnson, A, would have picked something off Ramey's desk to hand to him. I'm sure that Ramey's aide was in the... I, I'm sure that Ramey's aide was in the office and would not have allowed that. Um, but the point is, if Johnson brought it from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, it certainly relates to the Roswell case, but it's really totally irrelevant because it's not something that was generated by the communication center at, at Fort Worth, nor was it something generated in General Ramey's office. Yeah, that, that, that's logical. So, um, but I, like I said, I was surprised they couldn't read more. Since that time, uh, I know of a study that has been done down to the molecular level using the best equipment available in the last year and a half where they've attempted to determine exactly uh, what it what it says. And so I don't think we're going to get any better 
analysis from that, and the analysis uh, will appear on the History Channel here in the next couple of weeks. So be looking for that, uh, and how exactly all of that that was accomplished. Um, but I know that there was another Josh Gates, who does Expedition Unknown. He invited me down there, and I went. I went down there to meet Josh Gates, and had an opportunity again to see the negative and all that. In their interpretation, there's a there's a key phrase which is called which was at the top of the memo. It says, "A lot of people interpret interpret to be victims of the wreck." Well, if it's talking about victims of the wreck, that pretty well eliminates a weather balloon of any kind, whether it's a weather balloon or a mogul balloon or anything else. In that uh, reading with Josh Gates, the expert said he thought it said visiting or viewing, I'm sorry, viewing the wreck, which is a completely different interpretation and doesn't lead us anywhere, which I throw out there for people who may not know that. <laughs> no. Any comment? No, we, we were just uh, you know, disappointed as, uh, as anybody that we couldn't, couldn't find something on there because, quite frankly, we... We wanted to be a, a, a part of history. You know, we wanted to be the, I think I wrote in the book that uh, I could be a rock star of the, of the whole movement rather than some anonymous bureaucrat who basically uh, sat behind the desk and by most people's account lied to them. So we were hoping to really find something. Well, let's, uh, let's address that. You say li lying to the people. Was there anything that you had to misrepresent because of classifications that not necessarily relates to alien spacecraft, but something that you may have stumbled across uh, in your search for documentation? Um, not, no, I mean, and nobody put any pressure on me to do so. Neither the secretary or the vice chief of staff or anybody else, uh, or the secretary of defense for that matter, that because we had to report to those people on our, on our programs. But, uh, Nobody gave me any pressure or uh, any, quote, guidance on what they wanted to see or not see. Uh, so I didn't have any, any issues in, in, in that regard at all. Um, but uh, we just tried to present the facts as, as we learned them. And by, just by doing that, of course, uh, if we made a, a statement that disagreed with somebody's long-held belief we became by definition liars and conspirators and stuff which is how i've spent the last uh 25 years of my life or as being portrayed as that rather than a guy who just did his job and who didn't want to have the job in the first place well i think it's important especially in today's environment to realize that intelligent people knowledgeable people can disagree on the interpretation of the ba same basic set of facts. And that my interpretation doesn't agree with yours doesn't make you a bad person, nor does it make well, me a bad person. No, I mean, I think that kind of puts this in the minority with some people because uh, that's not the vein that uh, I usually get uh, uh, portrayed in. And, and you probably have your, yourself for the same, for, for the same reason is that, uh, you had a belief that was different than than somebody else's, so it's it, it's a little bit frustrating, but uh, it's just how it how it shook out. Well, I think uh, important point is Carl Flock and I disagreed on an awful lot of stuff, but we ended up doing an article together about Barney Barnett, who had seen 
allegedly seeing something over on the plains of San Augustine. And we were able to do that working together uh, because we had the same goal at that time is find out what the truth is. Was Barney Barnett involved in this sort of thing and does it have does it relate to Roswell? We're going to have to leave it there for the moment. Um, when we come back, I'm going to specifically move us to Project Mogul because I want to make sure that we, we talk about that because I think that's the important outgrowth of this whole thing. Is I am here with Richard Weaver, he of the Air Force investigation of the Roswell case, or, or a search for documents about the Roswell case. Um, when we went, went away, I promised that we would get to Project Bogle, because I think that's an important part of this whole investigation. What, what exactly was Project Mogul? How does it affect uh, what fell at Roswell? Everybody agrees something fell at Roswell. There's no disputing that. Something fell and something was recovered. It's what that was that is in dispute here. Uh, Rich, you came up, well, I say you came up with the Project Mogul explanation, but it was really others kind of leading you to that or you blundered into it yourself. How exactly did Project Mogul come to uh, the point of you recognizing it as an important factor in the Roswell case? Well, this is kind of a long answer, but we had no idea what it, when we were tasked originally what this may have been, so we had to consider a number of different possibilities. Uh, and if the Air Force was truly lying about uh, what it was that was recovered. So we looked at all kinds of things. Was this a, uh, a nuclear incident that had gone awry? Uh, was this uh, a crash of, of an aircraft that was uh, uncovered or covered up for some reason? Uh, was this any number of, of different things that, it, that might explain why something was recovered at Roswell? And we all agreed that there was something that was, that was brought back. What it was, of course, is a matter of some conjecture. But one of the things that it was from day one was always portrayed as was a weather balloon. So we had to consider, um, was this a weather balloon? Well, as, as you know from reading the original report, they don't keep records of weather balloons uh, that, that crash because weather balloons come down all the time. But uh, unless they hit somebody or something, it's not, a, not even a big deal. Um, but we started looking at other balloon incidents in there because we found uh, stories of other balloon activities taking place in the New Mexico area um, that didn't have anything to do with weather. And so we started looking at those. And we started looking at those really rather early on, uh, although at the time we knew nothing about the name Project Mogul or anything else. And we were able to finally come up through investigation and research with a project called Project Mogul, which at the time was in 1947, was classified top secret. That was a, a balloon program to try and collect data over the Soviet Union to detect nuclear testing. Now, that sounds a little goofy by today's standards, but at the time, we had no way of knowing what the Soviets were doing. We had no spy planes that could do that. We had no real spies on the ground that could do that. And they were very, very anxious to know what was going on. And so we managed to, through various bits and sources, put this together and, and 
found this uh, project that had since been declassified because it didn't work um, and started looking at it and started looking to where these things were launched from. And this is a rather extensive program, as you know, because you studied it uh, in quite detail yourself. And uh, the long story short is that out of all the things that we looked at, the most likely possibility that we could come up with is this was probably a mogul balloon because it fit the criteria of what we found was available, which was uh, both by verbal description and the photographic evidence in Fort Worth that uh, would account for this. And it had nothing to do with weather. And we that kind of skews the whole story because everybody throws the adjective weather in there. But uh, it was a balloon program as the most logical explanation to account for this uh, incident. And so that's what we reported. Did we say it was 100%? No way. We didn't say that. We said, given the preponderance of the evidence that we were able to uncover, it was the most likely explanation. Now, you found Dr. Albert Crary's diaries and field notes, Dr. Crary being the man in charge of it. Um, and Charles Moore, not related to William Moore, Charles Moore was a, right. uh, a postgraduate student or a, an engineer involved in the project in New Mexico, launching the balloons. So I've talked to him. I've been to his house. I've been to his house two or three times. I have a picture of him um, looking at the weather data that I gave to him, which he now denies that he denied that I had given to him. Uh, but the problem is what was going on in New Mexico, the launching of the balloons was not classified. That was basically off the shelf, frankly, weather balloons, neoprene rubber balloons and Raywind right. radar targets strung together in a long, a long train. But it um, wasn't anything extraordinary. So I'm, I'm confused about why the guys in Roswell would have thought this was something extraordinary. Well, certainly the um, you're right. The uh, the materials themselves that they used were not classified. There was nothing in that whole huge balloon train that was, that was classified. They used off the shelf hardware. Uh, what was classified was the purpose that they were using them for, and that the data that they were hoping to collect, which had to do with the nuclear testing in the Soviet Union. But um, you're right about the fact that there's nothing really unique about that. But most people s seem to think that these weather balloons are just ubiquitous and everybody sees them and they're flying around all the time. I've never saw one in 28 years in the Air Force. And I've been on God knows how many hundreds of Air Force bases. Uh, and I know what they look like because I've, I've seen pictures of them. But they're not just uh, common items that hang around. The meteorologists. The logical guys are certainly familiar with them, but uh, as a weather component, it, they're very seldom seen with Raywind targets because Raywind targets were used for other other purposes. Uh, not the not the least of which was to give a radar return, um, so they could do things like uh, uh, use them with artillery uh, and use them to to, tr to track different things. So, um, and the Raywind target itself was. Well, again, was a, a common piece of equipment for 
for some units uh, was not a regular weather uh, piece of equipment that everybody just had around the, the base. Like uh, they, many people purport, uh, you know, this was switched out out of Fort Worth or something. Well, I have I have two problems here. Uh, one of them is um, in the same time frame, just prior to the Roswell announcement, um, a Raywin target and weather balloon, and I use the term weather balloon on purpose here, uh, fell near Circleville, Ohio. The farmer who found it knew exactly what it was. He took it to the sheriff who knew exactly what it was, and it was displayed in the local newspaper office as uh, a possibility of what a flying saucer was, because if the um, Raywin was spinning, it could look like it was some kind of a disc-shaped craft. And in fact, there's pictures in the newspapers of, of the farmer's well, it says his wife, Mrs. Sherman Campbell, holding up the Raywin target. Turns out it's really his daughter. I know this because I talked to the daughter, and she says, no, that's me in the pictures. So, so I mean, here's a, a farmer in Ohio who had never seen anything like that but knew what it was when he found it. So I'm a little bit puzzled why Marcel and Cavett didn't recognize it for what it was when they first saw it. Don't, don't know the answer to your question, uh, have it when he talked to me. Now I know he's, uh, he, he, you've had some different uh, discussions with him than I did. But when he talked to me, he said he had no problem recognizing it as being part of a of a balloon. And he also mentioned a, a, a black box thing, which was consistent with what was going on with Mogul too. Um, I think Marcel even mentions that on one occasion in, in somebody's book. Well. Um... Why didn't he explain that to Colonel Blanchard before Colonel Blanchard went off on the tangent saying, well, uh, you know, uh, we found a flying saucer? Yeah, I, I, who, who, Marcel? No, Cavett. Or... Cavett says he recognizes his balloon and he would have, I'm sure Mar I'm sure Blanchard would have talked to Cavett as well as Marcel after having them coming back from the debris field. And I just wonder why he didn't mention that to to either Marcel or Cavett, uh, I'm sorry, Marcel or Blanchard. You know, I, I don't know the answer to your question. I, there's no indication that, that I came across, which didn't mean that it didn't happen, but that Blanchard talked to Cabot at all. Cabot was, although he was a CIC officer and he did not work for Marcel, he worked in Marcel's office, and Marcel was a major, Cabot was a captain. Um, that Marcel was the, the one that, from every indication that, we, that I've seen, dealt with with Blanchard you know why he didn't mention it to Blanchard or he didn't recognize it himself I I don't know I mean Marcel can't tell us that anymore but um, it, it's, it's a valid question certainly well the the other question the other question is we have the field notes from Dr. Crary and there's only one flight missing from the records flight number four which was launched on June 4th uh, 1947 um well, actually, I, I shouldn't say launch because the record said it wasn't launched. They scrubbed the they scrubbed the flight because of clouds. Um, they couldn't launch the balloon arrays in cloudy weather because it would present a uh, hazard to na aerial navigation. So, if the balloon wasn't launched, how could it leave debris? Well, of course, one of the things that we looked at, and I know that you've looked at extensive too, is there. There was a number of these arrays that were, were never recovered. Except, uh, there was a couple of them, if I recall, that were. 
uh, at least the the wreckage of them or the debris of them. Uh, and we looked at the possibilities of did this come from this flight or that flight or that flight, and it became our conclusion that uh, given the, the original statement that uh, um, the rancher found this in June and it just kind of held on to it, we that kind of ruled out the July launch because if he already had the stuff in June, that it was had to be something that took place before the day he found it, obviously. So um, we went with that that date because there was uh, a launch that took place in there that was never recovered, at least according to all the people that we talked to. Well, well I'm not talking about recovered. I'm talking about never launched. It says in the records, no flight today because of clouds. So they didn't launch it. So if they didn't launch it, flight number four never existed. Um, you know, I have to go back and pull pull down the, the book, which take longer to to get than than not. But there was a uh, obviously a uh, explanation for what it was. Now there was some talk about they just if they just cut these things and let them go, like who cares? Uh, because they were they were blown up and they were if they weren't launched uh, for scientific purposes, they're basically useless. I mean, they couldn't just hang around with them for another day. So I don't know. Uh, but the date made sense at, at the time when we studied the data, and that was the most likely one. Now, I know that you and I think uh, Carl Flock also uh, picked different dates uh, that would be more likely if it was a mogul uh, no, the only the only flight, the only date that works is June 4th, 1947. That's the only date that works. It's flight number four because flight number five was launched the next day. And it uh, I think it went toward uh, Roswell and actually flew over the um, bottomless lakes area, which is east of Roswell. Um, flight number flight number four. It says right in Dr. Crary's diary, no flight today because of clouds. And they were prohibited from from uh, launching the things at night or during clouds because they presented a a threat to aerial navigation. I'll have another point about that when we come back, which kind of helps you out a little bit uh, in, the, in the discussion, but I see we're running up against the break time again, so we'll, okay. we'll, let that, we'll get to that when we come back. And when we come back, we'll also try to talk a little bit about MJ-12 and some of the other ancillary issues that I, I know you address in your book, which is cleverly called Backstory, Roswell, Exclusive Untold Disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report, and of course my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, also discusses these things at length for those of you who want to dive deeply into the pool of minutia here. Uh, we will be back right after this, so please stick around. joined by Colonel Richard Weaver. And when I say joined, we are merely communicating over modern technology and not sitting in the same room because we believe in social distancing and staying healthy. When we left, we were talking about Project Mogul and the problem with flight number four, which is the culprit in this whole thing. 
All the other flights are accounted for. Everything is accounted for. It's got to be, if it's not flight number four, it's not a mogul array. Uh, what Charles Moore told me, Charles Moore being an engineer on Project Mogul in Alamogordo, they were launched from Alamogordo, Holloman Air Force Base. Uh, it wasn't Holloman at the time, but it is now. Right. That um, once they inflated the balloons, they couldn't put the helium back in the bottles. Right. And they would sometimes fly clusters of balloons, small clusters of balloons, lifting a microfoam up, and they would do some other kind of testing so that it wasn't completely lost. But the, um, but the problem is um, there was no flight number four, and the clusters of balloons didn't necessarily look like the arrays that uh, have been described for Project Mogul. So I, I am of the opinion, based on this, and based on the fact that um, they actually went to Roswell, the Roswell Army Airfield, the, the, the fellows working on Mogul, or on what they call the New York University Balloon Project, to uh, get their assistance in recovering their balloons and tracking their balloons. So they were aware of what was going on. They knew it was happening. So I'm, I, I, again, I'm, I, I think that that information sort of eliminates Project Mogul. And since we, since we, we were less than kind to Jesse Marcel's reputation, um, let's go after uh, Professor Moore. He changed the launch times repeatedly in his documentation to support the Mogul flight coming down near the Brazel Ranch. I think he got it within 17 miles, given the winds aloft data. But to do that, he had to launch the balloon at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and that was in violation of the regulations under which they operated. So that that suggests to me that, that it just wasn't the same thing. It wasn't a complete array. Uh, when they, they wouldn't have launched the the cluster balloons prior to dawn when they realized the clouds would prohibit the uh, launch. And it was sometime later in the day that they launched the cluster balloons, which changes the winds aloft data. So his whole calculations was based on faulty information. That's my take on it. Uh, Rich, what do you say? Well, obviously in 1994, we, we had a, a, a different perspective on it and uh, which was uh, as as far as Professor Moore is concerned, and, and I talked to him personally, and of course he was interviewed and gave us a uh, rather lengthy, uh, really lengthy um, statement, and we looked looked at his data, and he came across as a as a as a stand up uh, scientific guy. Now, could he have lied to us? I, I suppose anybody can lie to us. People. Certainly, as an OSI agent, that's what most people did to me every day. But um, um, we we had to take the information that we re received from him, and, as well as all the other people that we tracked down that had something to do with with uh, Project Mogul and the, and the whole uh, uh, the New York University effort uh, in New Mexico at that time, and that was the the best and most logical explanation we could come up with because there is literally not another piece of paper out there that explains anything having to do with what uh, we now call the, the Roswell incident in Air Force files. Well, I'll say, I'll say one thing or maybe a couple of things here that come to mind. First of all is that um, I talked to, like I said, I talked to Professor Moore a number of times and 
I think he got caught up in the idea that he was the man that launched the Roswell incident. And he manipulated the data so that one of their balloons could be the culprit. And we can see that in his original report that he, he issued with the launch times given after sunup and then having to change them to pre-dawn to make the, the calculations work, which is which is not exactly accurate. But I think the real real important point here, I wouldn't have access to all this information had had you not published it in the big thick um or, or whomever published the big thick book that came out in 1994, 1995 about the Roswell incident. All that data is in there. So I was able to go through there and found, found that information. I think Carl in his book um, has the notes from the, um, the diary that shows the launches and, and what happened to them. And flight number four is, is skipped in that notation. It goes from, uh, it goes from the, the launches in the East Coast to number five in New Mexico, and there is no flight number four mentioned in the in the data. And the information about the cluster balloons also comes from their information, and the regulations under which they operated comes from their information. To me, I don't think that uh, Mogul makes a <clears throat> good explanation, but as I've said repeatedly on this program in the last several weeks, because people keep saying to me, well, what do you think fell at Roswell? I will say I know of no terrestrial explanation that explains the Roswell case that doesn't necessarily take us to the extraterrestrial. It just means I know of nothing that would fit the bill of, of what we have there. And, and, and I don't think Project Mogul fits the bill either. In light of some of this new information that we've been able to determine in the last several years, does that kind of uh, affect your opinion on Mogul? No, I'm still going with with what we found in, in 1994, and uh, quite frankly, beyond that, other than going to the to the popular literature, you know, that's when my uh, knowledge of what the Air Force has comes comes to an end. But um, we were we were convinced that we had proposed a logical answer for to from a records perspective of what accounted for the, the Roswell incident. Now, the reason we wrote that humongous report, which is really a yawner, uh, is that's, that is the whole report. That's what I gave the Secretary of the Air Force. And we put in all that balloon data, in, and including the stuff that, that we got from Crary's uh, um, notes, for the specific purpose of, of what we're talking about now is that some future researcher, in this case yourself, would go through that and say, well, this is what you say, but where's the evidence? So we put all those charts and graphs and letters and everything in there. And I got to tell you, you got to be one of the few people that actually read through it. So good on you for that. But that that's the reason that, that all those things are in there. Otherwise, the thing would be about the size of the term paper. But, well, uh, I, you know, I, that's that's the whole point. I mean, when I'm looking for an answer, I'm looking for the answer. I'm looking for where the truth happens to be. And that is why I get castigated in the UFO community repeatedly because of some of the opinions I hold about, uh, let's say, alien abductions or cattle mutilations. The evidence has taken me in that, that direction. Um, here at, at Roswell, I've taken a step back from the point of view I had at once. Well, yes, it's definitely alien spacecraft because... Uh, there are some problems with 
the testimonies and some of the testimonies we thought were very robust turned out not to be very good at all, um, turned out to be completely fabricated. And that was very, very distressing. But we had to report that as well. If we're going to do an honest job, report it as, as well. But without the, uh, without the documentation that was in your report, you know, I would have spent probably months trying to get that information myself. The other thing I want to say is the purpose of Mogul was classified, but the name wasn't, because we find it in Crary's diary three or four times. He mentions at one point the Mogul equipment has arrived. So, um, you know, even the idea that the name was classified is kind of compromised at that point. The purpose obviously was classified, what they wanted to do. So that's kind of where my thinking is. I don't think Mogul is a very viable candidate for explaining the debris. Well, I guess this we're down to the point that reasonable men can agree to disagree uh, on, on it because that's what it, I have to go with is how we interpreted the information that was available to us, um, which is not the same as saying that uh, if if it was Project Mogul, uh, that you're dead wrong and uh, you're a bad guy. Uh, it's just that you interpreted the data differently than uh, than we did. And I certainly respect your opinion to uh, to do that. And I know you spent... Uh, literally years amassing data to, to try and get to uh, to your conclusion. Well, let's, let's, let's change the tone of the conversation here because we're, we're going to run out of time if we don't and have some fun with MJ-12. Oh, yeah. How did, <laughs> how did MJ-12 uh, manifest itself in your investigation? Well, of course, MJ-12 was not unfamiliar with to me because it had been kicking around for, for some time. And, and, uh, a number of people used it in the Pentagon to, as, uh, to get us, meaning the air force or the FBI or both to validate this documents, which from almost day one, both the air force and the FBI thought was bogus. And in fact, I even had a stamp made, made that said that this is a bogus document because it was, had all these markings and if we sent it back to them and said you could have it, then the Air Force provided them with, quote, a classified document, thereby uh, making it valid. I mean, they played so many games with that thing, uh, and it was just completely um, goofy, I mean, was, for lack of a better term. Was there one thing that stood out in the in the MJ-12 document, which is the Eisenhower briefing that, that was supposedly given to President-elect Eisenhower in, in 1952. Was there one thing that stood out that suggested to you that the thing was bogus? One one particular item that you would think of as a fatal flaw? Uh, right off the top of my head, I can't uh, can't pick, pick one out. I do know on the document that came out during the GAO inquiry, which somebody conveniently foot stomp provided to the to the GAO uh, which we call the, the son of uh, MJ12 the Psalm 1-01 document uh, which was also classified secret the whole the whole thing was fake is even in the uh, all the data contained therein about security markings and clearances and stuff was was all wrong and uh, but it conveniently showed up at the GAO's office to be brought to us in, in what we think is a blatant attempt to manipulate the the GAO's 
attitude toward the whole Roswell uh, effort. And uh, we wrote a separate response to that, as did a number of other agencies, uh, which you can find if you go on the Internet, although the GAO didn't blow that particular horn very loud. But they did they did write a response and said that they thought it was uh, bogus, too. So and the Bureau is always the Bureau being the FBI has always maintained that position, even and this transcends me and some of my other predecessors. So, Well, I know that um, th there were little things like the dating format being incorrect or inappropriate for the time, the classification markings being wrong. I noticed that it said, it, some of them, some of the documents that surfaced said uh, uh, top secret MJ-12, top secret Majestic-12, top secret um, Magic-12. Uh, I, I couldn't think of a code word where they would manipulate it in so many different ways that would end up confusing anybody who was involved in studying the thing and probably lead to compromise of the document at some point because you didn't know which classification. And what about this? I, and, and quickly, because I'm, I'm going to run out of time here quickly. What about this I, eyes only thing that's stamped on there? Didn't that uh, raise any red flags? Well, I, eyes only is, at least in my tenure in the military, is not a, a stamp that, that that we ever saw or used. I mean, it was either classified at a certain level or it wasn't, or it was either part of a program that had a code word involved with it or it wasn't, or it was an intelligence document or it wasn't. Those are all standard stamps. Eyes only is not one of them that, other than in movies that I've ever, ever seen. Oh, okay, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to take a break here. We'll come back to MJ-12 here in a moment. Um, I wanted to mention there's some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at the listings at the X-Zone website, and I'm sure that you're going to find some that will spark your interest. I'm here with Colonel Richard Weaver, author of Backstory Roswell Exclusive Untold Disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report, and we will return right after this, so please stick around. Richard Weaver after this marathon issue, this marathon production of A Different Perspective. He is the author of Backstory Roswell, exclusive untold disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report. When we went away, we were talking about MJ-12 and some of the problems with the documents. And you had mentioned you'd never seen anything stamped uh, um, top secret, eyes only or uh, whatever. Oh, like top secret, sure. But I mean, eyes, only, but but I, with the eyes only caveat on it. The, the document that we specifically dealt with during uh, uh, the GAO um, audit had to do with uh, the, the document was classified both top secret and then it said restricted. Now, there, that's a major faux pas, and I cover that in a book. And restricted was a, a very little used say it was a classification i guess it was for a short period of time a year or two it was the lowest level it was below confidential and uh, so this document that they purported to give to the gao was classified at both at the highest level and at the lowest level 
which is oxymoronic at best. Uh, and that goes with a lot of other administrative goofs in the document itself, which I, uh, I exp- explain it in, in the book. The one thing but, that, uh, well, the one thing that always got me is on the Eisenhower briefing document, there's a report of a crash near Del Rio, Texas in, I think they say December 6, 1950. Uh, that story comes from a guy named Robert Willingham, who claimed to have been an Air Force colonel, as a matter of fact. Uh, no, when I got his records, um, it turned out that um, he had been in the military for 13 months. He claimed to be a veteran of World War II, and technically he was, because he joined the military in December of 1945, and the war was not declared officially over until the ni- middle of 1946. So technically he was a veteran of World War II. He claimed to be a fighter pilot. He claimed that while in Korea, uh, he had, didn't have an uh, uh, um, aviation assignment, but he and a friend had found a couple of P-51 Mustangs that weren't being used, so they went out on their own missions. And I'm trying to figure out how they a, got them refueled and rearmed and how they checked into the area, but that's a whole other argument. The point simply is the story came from this guy who was not an Air Force colonel and this story is in part of the Eisenhower briefing document, and if he wasn't who he said he was, then that story's not true, and that kind of dis- de- uh, destroys the entire Eisenhower briefing document to my way of thinking. Well, that certainly makes sense. I wasn't aware of that story, by the way, but that's very interesting. Well, I, that that all came out after um, after your, your report. Um, what happened was Willingham appeared on the scene in, I think, 1977, and everybody accepted his tale as being true because he was a retired Air Force colonel. Nobody bothered to check his records. And as I was doing a book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, I was going to put that in the book, and I thought, well, let's see what's the latest on that, and discovered uh, all this information about Willingham, and finally was able to uh, secure his records and discover that he was not who he said he was. And when I was listening to these stories being told about him, I just didn't believe it. They showed a picture of him in an Air Force uniform, except he had Civil Air Patrol ribbons on it. And having been in the Civil Air Patrol at, at one time, I know that you can wear your military awards on your Civil Air Patrol uniform, but you cannot wear your Civil Air Patrol awards on your Air Force uniform. So Correct. that told me the picture was not of him in an Air Force uniform, but as a picture in a Civil Air Patrol uniform. Um, so that that kind of uh, shot a big hole in the Eisenhower briefing. I thought if that is the fatal flaw, and if that's document is fraudulent, then everything else collapses around it. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that when you when you find one part that's really wrong, then you got to question all the other parts that are that are in there. Uh, because, you know, that's how, how do you have a, a, a document at that level with a great big lie in the middle of it and then expect to believe the rest of it? It's not going to happen. Isn't, isn't there a disinformation campaign where you've, you found a leak, so you leak additional documents that have some real information in it, but also have false information as a way of discrediting the entire, uh, to protect the, the security of the documents? The, because to, to destroy the leak. Is that ever done? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's happened. But not in your experience. 
Am I treading? Uh, am I, am I'm, I treading sure, the, I'm, I'm sure that's happened. Okay. Am I treading on classified information here? <laughs> I, I detect a hesitancy to answer my question. I suspect it has some nothing to do with uh, anything else. I suppose I don't know. Um, We've looked at we've I think we've looked at your book in pretty much detail, which is of course Roswell exclusive untold disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell report, which is available by the way on Amazon, which is how I have managed to secure a copy. Is there something else in that book that you that we haven't talked about that you think is important we bring up? Well, there, there's a lot of stuff in the book, and if you have trouble sleeping, you might want to get a copy of it just as a sleep aid because there's a lot of detailed arcane stuff in there, but I. I put that in there, uh, and I wasn't getting paid by the word when I did. So I wanted people to know what we went through, so they have as many facts as possible and, and know the real ins and outs of what not just the I did, but the whole crew of people, of which there was about 100 or so, that worked on this thing all very diligently. Uh, and this was not a great big uh, blow-off by the Air Force. This cost you, the taxpayer, a whole bunch of money. Uh, to uh, put together the original report and issue that. And I wanted the people today to know the effort that uh, that we went through to try and do that, uh, for which we were, you know, summarily uh, uh, made fun of and chastised in many cases. But um, so it's just the backstory. And there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there of uh, what what people did to, to go to the links that we did to to try and get to what we hoped was the truth. And I will just kind of throw out in that as all of us involved in that really, really wanted to find something because it, that was as important to us as not finding something. In fact, not finding something was uh, really, really disappointing for us. But I got to tell you, we really busted our humps to to try and, and get to a, what we considered the truth, and we thought we did. And uh, a lot of people apparently thought we did. But uh, well, this details what, all the effort in that. Wasn't this, wasn't this sort of a lose-lose proposition for the Air Force? I mean, no matter yeah, what you did, you were going to annoy somebody. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this was the original, please, Lord, why? In fact, one of my chapters is called Why Me, Lord?, is that, you know, how did I get stuck with this? This is not something that I ever wanted to be involved in because I had no dog in this hunt one way or another. And uh, so if they picked a guy to try and cover it up, they picked the wrong guy because uh, I had no intent to cover it up if it if there was something there. And uh, alas, what we were able to find was not what most people wanted or thought we should find so is there is there a place a classification a project that would have been so highly classified that might have related to roswell that you wouldn't have been able to get a hint of it in in the investigation in, in not in the air force no sir I had, the, I had the keys to the kingdom, uh, and that not me personally. I, di I mean, I did, but all, the reason I did was not because of who I was. It was because of the position I had, which still exists today, uh, and it existed before that. So um, we were responsible for trying to keep the lid on all this stuff, so somebody has to know the secrets. And in that case, it happened to be 
me, which is why the, it ended up in that particular office at that particular time. And uh, well, I think you point out in the book, you point out in the book that it really wasn't the Air Force's problem in the beginning; it was the Army's problem. Yeah, because, right. Because there was no Air Force. Well, there was the Army yeah, Air Forces, which was part yeah, of the Army. But yeah, but so, there was no. Air Force is a separate service until September of that year. So, what 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 about the possibility that the Army had it secreted away in some dark, deep corner? Um, would you have been able to get at it uh, with this investigation? Well, the Army, as well as the Navy and the Marine Corps and the CIA and a whole bunch of other people, also got tasked to respond to the, to the GAO on this, and through the DOD, because they, they, they sent it to DOD, and then the DOD sent it out to all the other services. And uh, so if they're, they were supposed to be doing the same thing, looking for records on it, the, the fact is is that the U.S. Air Force, the new 1947 version, inherited all the things having to do with the old Army Air Force. And so the ultimate sticky of all the records of that should have been the new U.S. Air Force. So we were in the best position to have access to that. But the Army was separately tasked, too, and they reported nothing back of any significance, nor did anybody else for that matter. I know that there's been instances where Air Force officers have been, uh, I, I don't want to say lied, had, had misled pe Congress people um, because the specific officer making the response didn't have access to the information he or she would have needed to make a, 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 a truthful response. Uh, so I, I'm just wondering if there couldn't be something like that involved here where um, you, you, you're telling the truth as you know it, but there might be another truth hidden away in some archive. Uh, pretty darn unlikely. And <laughs> The, the, the fact is, is that uh, this, the same applies to Congress. Just because you're a congressman doesn't make you all that special because there are a whole lot of congressmen who are not a whole lot, a handful of congressmen who are more special. And they also have the keys to the kingdom because we had to go out there and brief them because we have to get the money from someplace and it's got to come from Congress. And so they have certain groups of, of folks up there have oversight over all these programs, so they're equally aware. But just Joe Dokes, the congressman, doesn't have that access. Nor well, does most of the people in the Air Force, but for that matter, other than the secretary and the, the chief of staff. Well, we're, we're out of time, Colonel Weaver. I want to thank you for taking your time to chat with us here and give us your insights into the Air Force, investi <clears throat> Air Force investigation into this. The book, once again, is Backstory Roswell, the exclusive untold disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell report, uh, told by the guy who conducted the investigation or directed the investigation and was deeply involved with it. Thank you for taking your time on a different perspective. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Coming up in the future, uh, we're going to be doing other more important, <laughs> I don't mean more important, other important investigations as that like like this, um, and we'll take a look at some of the things that I think uh, interest all of us. I, I do want to mention that um, if you if you want to take a look at Colonel Weaver's um, take on it, and he actually called it a different perspective. Uh, 
it's 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 a worthwhile look. But you also need to take a look at Roswell in the 21st century because some of the issues we discussed here, briefly, um, I can go into much greater detail, and and he can go into much greater detail in his book about how all of this came about. Um, and how things developed. I have a long, long appendix in the, um, actually I have a couple of those, uh, about first uh, MJ-12 and all the problems with it, and then with um, Project Mogul and some of the things that I have learned in discussions with Professor Moore and other people who are involved directly with that. And I think it gives you an idea of how complex these things can be, these investigations can be. It's not something that is done overnight or in the matter of a week or a month. Some of it takes literally years for us to understand. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll take a look at other investigations and other UFO sightings that I think impact on what we see and what we believe and how we deal with uh, this phenomenon. And I think it gives us insight into um, some of it into the human psyche and some of it into the possibility that there is extraterrestrial visitation. Not nearly as much, but there is some of that. I want to, uh, again, thank Colonel Weaver for taking his time. You've been listening to a different perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network, and I'll be back in 167 hours. So thanks for tuning in.